So all summer long, you are going to live with this. You're going to probably not even know how to place it. There's probably going to be some deep down excitement. Man, I love church. I can't wait. You know what I'm saying? I don't know why. And what it is, is you'll spend all summer just waiting. You, down there, you can't wait to get back for Leviticus. It won't be Randall's Slaw. It won't be the food that's coming up. That's not what you want. It's really to get back to Leviticus, right? And so we are. Look, I want y'all to have that deep down all summer excitement to get back to it. So I'm not going to do it. What I did want to do is like we do with introductions, I want to come um, and just simply close out the book of Exodus with what I think are, are three lessons and really kind of three lessons in two parts. So that'll, if that tells you anything, I spoke to our interns today and I gave them seven lists. That's not seven things. That's seven different lists. As y'all see, one list had 10, one list had three, one list had, so they were listed up. So I'm going to do something like that for you guys tonight. And I'm going to do these three things in two parts. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at, which will kind of end and close out the book of Exodus. Three big lessons for us that I think we've seen going through this and, and would, would help us in this way. So um, if we just think through and just give you a quick reminder as we've gone, gone through Exodus, when you begin Exodus, you begin it in bondage in Egypt, right? And so you have the people of God. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12 becomes the outline of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. We know him as Abraham. He'll, he, uh, he will, name will be changed. And God gives him three promises, right? Or one promise with three parts. He gives them these three promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. At the time, Abraham didn't have any children and couldn't have children. He was 75 years old and, and barren and his wife was barren. So they didn't have any kids. But God makes him a promise. I'm going to make you and your offspring into a great nation, right? And then he said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place where you're trotting right now because Abraham, he brought him into that, that land and he said, I'm going to give you this land from this border to that border. I'm going to give you some land and I am third going to bless, those, bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So I'm going to, I'm going to make you a great nation You'll be my people, my great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you. And really, those three promises become the outline of the Old Testament. Because you begin the process here of how that works. You have the story of Abraham and Sarah and how they couldn't have children until God answered his promise with Isaac. And, and you saw Abraham's little side roads and detours until finally God answers his promise with Isaac. And then you saw what God required of him with Isaac and, 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 and that sacrifice. And you see his faithfulness. And then, then you see Isaac with Jacob and Esau. And you saw how that worked out. And then you see Jacob having been run off and sent off and he finds Laban, his uncle, and he marries Laban's daughters. And then he has 12 sons and these become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And Jacob's name after he wrestled with God is changed to Israel. And so you have the 12 tribes of Israel through these 12 sons and you find out how they end up in Egypt. They actually end up in Egypt by God caring for them 
during the time of a famine and how Joseph was sold off there. God worked everything. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. He worked everything out. So they're in Egypt in the land of Goshen, which is quite a green, nice little spot right on the Nile, and they're thriving at the end of Genesis. God has cared for them. When you get to Exodus now, remember there's 400 years. 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And what we learn in Exodus is that God has done exactly what he said he would do. The people of God are a great nation, right? They're a great nation. In fact, it says they had become great. And so there they are, a great nation has been formed. But by this time, Joseph is not remembered. The God of Israel has been forgotten in, in Egypt. And Pharaoh is dominating them, putting them in slavery and bondage. And so they become a great nation. Now the next section is going to be how do they get the land? So they're in bondage in Egypt. How are they going to get the land back? So they become great. First little part of that promise has been given. Now the land comes. And so Exodus begins that journey, that trek out of slavery into the promised land. It begins that journey. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua will take us all the way through how they get into the promised land. And so you, you find this part, and that's what we begin in Exodus. And God says, not only am I going to pull you out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, I'm going to be with you. So God's redeeming them out of Egypt so he can be with them. So God is making himself known in Exodus. After 400 years, he begins to speak. He's making himself known so that he can be with his people. God's presence with his people. And that becomes the whole point. God's saving and redeeming so he can be with them. So he can be with them and lead them. Out of that becomes a lot of lessons for what it means to be in God's presence what it means for us to be in God's presence. And you find those kind of lessons as you work your way through the book of Exodus. And so just quickly, uh, one theologian has said, Christianity, theology, Christianity, all is summed up in two things, knowing God and knowing yourself. Really all of scripture is teaching us those two things. Who is God and who are we, right? So knowing God and knowing self. And when you run through Exodus, you learn a lot about God and you learn a lot about us. You learn a lot about who he is and a lot about who we are. And so ultimately, that's what I want to see. Let's see who God is in light of who we are. And so just three quick things I want to point out tonight. First is this. God defines, if we're going to live in the presence of God, we need to recognize that God defines the relationship with his people. God defines the relationship with his people. What we find very quickly is when God identifies himself, it's not a contract negotiation. He doesn't sit down with Moses and say, all right, I'm ready to take you out of the bondage of Egypt. What kind of things do you want in a God? What kind of things would you like in this process? What kind, of, what kind of stuff would you want? If I was going to take you out of Egypt, tell me what you want in this. There's no sitting down and negotiation. Yeah, God, we want you to deliver us, but can you do it on a Friday, right? Or, or, or can you do it in such a way that we don't have to, we don't have to march anywhere? Can you go ahead and invent the airplane or something? You know, I'm, I'm making up stuff now. 
But you recognize my point. There's no contract negotiation. God appears to Moses out in the wilderness in Midian there or in Sinai itself. And God says, what's the first thing he says to Moses when he appears? Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. God is saying, if you are going to enter into my presence, you've got to come in on my terms. On my terms. Now, we recognize this is right. Now, this may offend us in some sense because of our own sensibilities and what we may want. And especially us nowadays, we like everything's a contract negotiation. You know what I'm saying? We, we want to, to, to pay a certain amount and we want to bargain with it here and there. And we're, we're interested. But God doesn't allow this. God simply says, if you're coming into my presence, Moses, take off your shoes. And if you don't take off your shoes, what happens to Moses? You perish. Death. If you're going to enter into God's presence, you can only come in under his rules, under his circumstances. Not any contract part on you, not any negotiation part here, but under his rules and under his circumstances. So for us, we are, and what we find through this, Moses, of course, takes off his shoes. He's on holy ground. God says, here's who I am. I am who I am, Yahweh. This is my name. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you out. And remember, Moses tries, if you go back and remember, Moses tries the contract negotiation. He said, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I don't speak well enough. I don't, I, you, you can't ask me to go do this. I'm old man now. I'm not equipped here. And in every way, God says, Moses, you are the guy. I not only will call you, I will equip you and I'll give you absolutely everything you need. You don't negotiate whether or not it's going to be me or somebody else here. God's saying, I'm calling you, Moses, and you're going to come into my presence and you're going to lead my people. When we come into God's presence, we don't get to do the contract negotiation. But however, what we learn is that we are prone to instant gratification. We're prone to instant gratification rather than long-term faithfulness. The people of God, quickly, God redeems them, calls them out, leads them out, and what do they begin to do? I mean, I'm not talking about 15, 20 minutes after the Egyptian army has been crushed in the Red Sea that the people start saying what? I'm hungry. When are we going to stop? Now, I don't know if y'all have ever been on a trip before, but, but, but if you've had kids and you go on a trip, what happens? When are we, how much longer? When are we going to stop? I'm hungry. And just a moment there, every, so I, I took my youngest, Patton, I, I don't even think he's paying attention. But he does this when we go on any trip. Anything longer than an hour, how much further, Dad? How much further? And I just come up with a number. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, two or three hours, son. Oh, God. How much further, Dad? 20 minutes. Oh, great. Next time, 45 minutes. Are we going backwards, Dad? What are we doing? I just make stuff up because it's aggravating. You know what I'm saying? In some sense, you get in and you start driving, and I just look at them and I say, y'all follow me. I mean, they're in the car. They got to, right? I'm going to get you there. Just follow me. It's fine. And so you can feel a little bit of your blood just kind of, oh, that's enough. You know what I'm saying? Don't ask me again. Have any of y'all dads ever said, don't ask me again? 
See there? Now you know a little bit of what God feels like when he's trying to lead the people out of the, out of the bondage of Egypt and into the promised land. Because 15 to 20 minutes in, how, how much further? How much farther are we going to go? We need food and we need it now. How are we going to eat? We'd rather die in Egypt. We'd rather have something there than starve out here in the wilderness, God. How much are you going to do? Ultimately, what they're after constantly here is this battle between faithful obedience of following God and his plans and their own instant gratification of what they want right now when they want it. And I'm, I'm telling you guys, that is a picture of the Christian life, period. Sinfulness is us pursuing after instant gratification. I want what I want and I want it now. I know what's best for me. Sinfulness is us pursuing after that. Whereas God has called us, as, as one theologian has said, into a long obedience in the same direction. I would call his name, but I forget his name right now. God is calling us into a long obedience. In other words, discipleship and faithfulness. Eugene Peterson, I'm sorry. God has called us into a long obedience in the same direction. And I think that's a great understanding of what it means to follow the Lord. It's not going to be just, it's not, God's calling us to the instant gratification. You pray, God comes into your heart and your life, and now everything you have, everything you can long for is given to you. No, he's called us into a trust faith relationship to where he says, I will bring you safely home. And so the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. We're being faithful and following. Being faithful and following. We're looking for that instant gratification. But God doesn't give it. God tells us exactly who he is and what he wants from us. And that's what he expects. The burning bush Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and then the, the case law given, the water from the rock whenever he, he pronounces judgment even there to give the water from the rock, the description of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, all of those places are where God's saying, here's what I expect from you. If you're going to live in my presence, this is what I expect. For us, that's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is the Lord saying, I've surely saved you and redeemed you. Now here's what I expect from you. Here's how you are to live. Here's how, here's how you are to be obedient. Now understand the next point. God is, 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 he's the one that defines the relationship with his people, but God is all his people need. God is all his people need. Now notice what I didn't say. I didn't say God supplies all that his people need. That's true. What I said though, was that God is all that his people need. And there's an important difference. We don't love God for what he gives us. We don't love God for what he hands us, right? We don't come to faith in following him because of what we can get out of it. If you've got some understanding, and maybe it's some preacher someday, because some preachers can be dumb, but maybe it's some preacher somewhere that said, presented the gospel to you or, or something. And maybe it was me at some point. I don't know. But some preacher said and presented the gospel as if, do you want heaven? Then you got to get Jesus. You right? You ever heard that? I'm telling y'all, that is true. But looking at it that way causes a dysfunction in the Christian life. 
we start seeing Jesus as a ticket to the event and not the event himself. We start seeing him as not what's most important, and we start seeing what he can get for us or give us as most important. The treasures of glory and eternity become more precious to us than Jesus, right? He's just the way we get in. When in reality, we get Christ Jesus. We get God himself. And because we get him, all other things are added to it. Because of who we have in, Christ, in God in Christ, then, then heaven becomes our reward because of who he is and because he is our treasure. He is our joy. When you see Exodus, that becomes uh, obvious here. Whenever the Lord says, y'all go on to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. We've looked at that over the last couple weeks. But when, we, when you go through, you see how dangerous and disastrous that is. Because who was it that, that has helped them? It's been God that has guided them. God is the one who redeemed them out of Egypt. It's God who, who tore down the gods of Pharaoh. And it's God who, who displayed his power through the plagues. It's God who brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground as he parted it. It's God who caused the manna to be on the ground every single morning. It's God who brought the water from the rock. It's God who led them with the fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. It is the Lord God who has provided, protected, Everything they needed has been given on the way. And so ultimately what God is saying is, hey, hey, if you want to get to the promised land, but you want it without me, you go ahead. But when you don't have him, you don't have the protection, you don't have the provision, and you don't have all of the glories that God brings in himself. You don't have his presence. And what's ultimate for us is not all of the stuff. What's more important for us is the presence of God, the presence of God with us. What we've seen and learned in Exodus is that it's really not about the quantity of our faith, but the quality of the object of our faith. When uh, There's two examples of this. I used one when we came through uh, of, on faith, and I think there's two beautiful examples of this in the book of Exodus, one being the Passover, um, we talked about that. Like there's two different dads, you know, and they're responsible. God gives the instructions. Here's what you're to do on the night of the Passover. You're to get the perfect little lamb. You are to, to cook it and eat it, kill it, cook it, eat it, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, right? And then you're to cook it and you're to eat it. You're to, you're to get dressed. You're to have your staff between your feet. You're to have your bags packed. Your family eats this together. What you don't eat, you take outside and you burn it, right? And then you wait for the Lord to call you. And so they got these instructions of all the things they're going to do. And you have two different dads. There's one dad who goes, man, that's awesome. The death angel's coming, and he's going to come into every house, but God has given us a way out. Y'all go get the fatted little lamb. Let's cook that thing and eat it. We get a lamb dinner out of this deal. And so we're going to eat the lamb, and, and they sing, and they rejoice, and they laugh together because of what God has promised to them. And they're celebrating the goodness of God in his promises, and they eat the meal, and they get ready to go. They take it out, they burn it, and then they sit together and just wait on the Lord to call in their joy. And then you have the other dad who hears the news, and he's like, man, 
uh, I don't know if this is going to work. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not very good at following instructions. And, and what if I do it wrong? I mean, how much blood am I really supposed to put on the doorpost? Is, is it covering the whole doorpost? Y'all know people like this? Do I need to cover the whole thing? Do I need, how, do, how long do I cook it? You know what I'm saying? Like everything comes into mind and there's actually terror because if I don't get this right, my oldest son whom I love dearly will die. And so I better get this right. And he, I, I hope this is, I hope this is true. I hope this is not something that, 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 that the, the, just joking with me or something. So he, he cooks it, they eat it, they don't sing, they're in terror, they're sitting around just kind of talking about this or, or nobody's even speaking out of fear. And, and he's got his backpack, they take it out and they, they burn it outside the house. And then he grabs his oldest son and his family and he hugs him tight because he doesn't know what's going to happen next, right? And the question comes, which one of those dads lost his son that night? And the answer is neither. One had faith. God has answered and do it. The other had faith. And it's not the quality of their faith, right? It's the one they're trusting in. To while one seemingly had a little bit of faith, he still did what God called him to do. And God faithfully saved his son that night, passed over. The one who had a lot of faith, he still did what God called him to do. And God faithfully passed over his house. Oftentimes we look in, at our faith and what we realize is we should not be putting faith in our faith, right? We put faith in God. And oftentimes we put faith in our faith. How much do I trust? How much do I And God is all that we need. We put our faith in him. The other example is in the Red Sea. Could you imagine as the Red Sea parted, the walls of water come up, and then they're like, all right, y'all follow me. We're going through that. Some may have walked with triumph and joy as they walk through this. The others are looking at like, is this thing about to cave in? Either way, if they do what God called them to do, whether they do it out of sheer joy or they do it out of fear, knowing if they're doing it right, if they walk through it, they're saved on the other side. Because faith demands action, and our faith, the evidence of our faith is in the following after God. And so Exodus teaches us that God not just supplies all that we need. Surely he does that. He's God. He can give us and supply us with everything. He is all we need. And if he is for us, who can be against us? As they say or later, we'll, the little saying goes, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Y'all ever heard that before? Same way. When the Lord is with us, we don't need anything else. And Exodus teaches us that over and over and over again. Third, God is jealous. God is jealous. He saves his people so he can be with his people, and he does not want his people to turn to another God. It's the illustration of marriage, right? And, and the Lord uses this illustration so many times in Scripture that he, that, that he is the, the bridegroom and his people are his bride. We'll see this. We, we saw it with Hosea, and as he did it with Hosea, Jesus will do this in Ephesians chapter 5, right? He's the bridegroom. His church is the bride. We see that illustration of marriage. It's an unfailing commitment of love between God and his people, and God is always faithful. And what he calls us, his people, to be is what? Faithful. 
So as the husband, we think of jealousy as always bad, but it's not. In some sense, I'm jealous for my wife's affection, right? I don't want her to give that to another man. We're committed to each other. This is a faithful commitment we have. I'm jealous in this covenant relationship that her affection should not be given to another, but to me. So I'm jealous for that. In the same way the Lord's saying he's jealous for us. Don't turn to another God. Don't put your trust in another place. Him and him alone is who we are to love and who we are to follow. And what's true is God's plans for his people is for our best. And, and I like it saying it a little bit better. I've started using this language a little bit better. And I did when we did the Ten Commandments. God's plans for his people is for our flourishing, right? I like that a little bit. He's making a way for us to flourish. Not just joy, not just, not just our best, but for our satisfaction. God, his plans are for our satisfaction. Whenever the people make their own plans, they want instant gratification. They want to determine how the relationship is. They want to negotiate, if you will. They want to place their faith in something they can see, not something that's unseen. So what do they do? They make a golden calf. And that golden calf and their worship of that golden calf becomes absolutely disastrous for the people. The presence of God is gone. He says, I'm out. I'm not. Be it's disastrous. The flourishing of God's people is found in their resting and trusting in him alone. In him alone. Recognizing that he's all they need. He's all they need. God is going to supply their needs because he is with them. His presence is with them. God's plans are the best plans for his people. And at the end of the book, what do we find? We find there in chapter 39, I mentioned it's like 29, 21 times, 39 and 40, where he simply says, they did as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded Moses. They did as the Lord commanded Moses. You see at the end of the book, the people have learned their lessons against instant gratification. They've learned their lessons, if you will, against their faithfulness and where the object of their faith is and that they should be walking after the Lord in a long obedience in the same direction. They've learned their lesson for that and they've learned that God's love for them, his jealous love for them is good enough to satisfy them with all of their life and so ultimately it says, they did as the Lord said. They did as the Lord said. They did as the Lord said. And at the end of the book, the climax of it all, having done as the Lord said, learning those lessons in life, what do they get? They get God's presence with them. They get, they get the hope. They get the joy. They get the satisfaction. They get God's presence. And that's how the book ends. They were in a foreign land under oppression and slavery at the beginning. And at the end, they're marching to the promised land with the blessing and presence of God with them. They learned their lessons along the way. And what they've learned is that the one who is faithful, the one who has redeemed them, the one who has called them, he is enough. He's all they need. He's all they need. And I would tell you, if you read your Bible, and if you just come away after every time you're reading the Bible with the same line, 
the Lord God is all I need. Then my friends, I promise you, your life will be a blessed life. A blessed life. When you realize he's all you need and you follow after him, satisfaction is what all of us are looking for and longing for. And we were created by God to only be satisfied by God. We can try to fill our life with other things and other stuff, but only he can satisfy. Only his presence can bring joy. Only his presence can help us flourish as his people. And the book of Exodus teaches us those lessons, which are ones that we have to remember over and over and over again. We come to God, not on our own terms, but on his terms. And his terms are good for how he saved us and redeemed us. And we follow after him because he is all we need. And we trust him because he loves us with a jealous love and wants our best. That's what the book of Exodus really is all about. God's presence with his people. God's presence with his people. We'll see, again, all jokes aside, when we get to Leviticus, how much is required for God to dwell with his people. The whole book is about what they have to do to maintain, to maintain God's presence with them. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? How could his presence stay there? Here's what's required. And what does that make us do or should make us do at every turn and every page? Thank you, God, for meeting these requirements for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Because we could never keep them. The book of Exodus begins... Uh, saying it begins. Of course it begins in Genesis, but here we have a clear place of where the book of Exodus begins, the kingdom of God establishing itself on the earth. At the end of it, you have God's presence with his tabernacle and his people marching through. And this is going to be a long process as we'll see this kingdom of God being established because we'll see different pieces come together, different pieces come together until finally we see the one who has come to bring the kingdom fully and completely here. And that's his son, Jesus Christ, which is what he announces. Remember, I said from the beginning, and I got this past Christmas like 10 different things with Bob Ross on it because of you guys. I love all of you. <laughs> but as I said, the Old Testament is painting for us a majestic, glorious picture, better than Bob Ross. And every story, every verse is a brushstroke on this picture that when we get to the New Testament, we see it's Christ. It's Jesus. That's what all of this is pointing us towards. Because what we'll realize is no matter how much how much we learn our lessons, we always unlearn them rather quickly, right? That's why, that's why when we sing Come Thou Fount, y'all know the song Come Thou Fount? We sing a little bit more gusto, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Because we resonate with that. We resonate that we are prone to wonder like these Israelites in Exodus. We're prone to leave the one we love, like these Israelites in Exodus. We resonate with it. But at the same time, he's faithful to keep us and to hold us and to fulfill the promises that he made. 
So God is good. And the book of Exodus teaches us just how good he is to a people that's sometimes obstinate, sometimes difficult. By his grace, he not only saves them and redeems them, he teaches them and he scolds them and he corrects them until at the end, what? They did just as he commanded to do. Just as he commanded to do. That's what the book of Hebrews says, by the way, is that God does the same thing for us. He disciplines those he loves so that we will be faithful and obedient. Faithful and obedient. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us to discipline us, to teach us, to mold us and to shape us for you know us best for us. And so God, may we be a people that continue to follow you like a long obedience in the same direction. Faithfully, not pursuing after instant gratification of this world, but trusting in the faithful promises of God. Even when we believe they're slow, we recognize, God, you were always on time. And so, Father, help us when we grumble and complain to remember the lessons of Exodus. This isn't a negotiation. You have told us what you require of us. And so may we be faithful through the power of your spirit, God, to live as you've called us to live, recognizing that the greatest joy in life, the greatest treasure we could have is you. And so, Father, we're thankful for you, that you would choose us as your people, that you would dwell with us through the presence of your spirit, and that you would lead us by a king, a faithful king, Jesus. All of this, God, we pray as we seek to pursue after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. We'll see you later. See you Sunday.